Hey, you guys look familiar. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. Sorry, bumped my mic there to start off, but hope your day is going well. Happy Thursday. A little bit earlier episode today, so I hope you all are surviving the beginning of the holiday season. I've been back in uh, the West Coast in the Reno Tahoe area now, and yeah, just kind of getting used to some clean mountain air, which is nice. I might be moving back here fairly soon, have some things happening in the next week or so that'll determine that or not, but not going to really uh, say anything for certain quite yet. But uh, a couple things, I'm going to do something different today. We're going to focus on kind of a long, just one segment today, lessons from the Spanish Civil War. But first, a couple things just uh, that I've been kind of skimming through that I think are interesting is Peru's president again has been arrested after basically he tried to get rid of the parliament uh (laughs) yeah it's never particularly great and this is you know peru is one of those countries i did an episode on the old podcast peru they don't really hold on to leaders very much argentina also has a similar issue with corruption but peru is very specifically bad in terms of maintaining any form of a leader and, I mean, this guy <laughs> this guy is quite interesting. There's a good segment that reads, the, the tumultuous day began when then-President Castillo announced plans to dissolve Congress and install an emergency government ahead of a looming impeachment vote by lawmakers, which Peru's omnibusman described as an attempted coup d'etat. So this guy, actually, during COVID, when the former president, whose name is escaping my mind, had to step down... And we've also had several other presidents. One killed himself in prison. This guy, (laughs) they're going to impeach him. So he just tries to dissolve Congress. I mean, honestly, that's actually kind of impressive because if Donald Trump could have done that, I mean, he maybe would still be in power. And so, of course, that's illegal. He also, from my understanding, Castillo, the former president who's now arrested, he also called for... (laughs) Um, parliamentary elections to work on a new constitution. I guess the armed forces even rejected his attempt to sideline lawmakers. That's always good, actually, when the military stands up to this type of insanity. And, you know, I'll probably do a deeper episode into this when more information comes out, but I just found this kind of fun. But Dina Bolarte is actually Peru's first female president. She became the leader after Castillo was arrested for, I love this crime too, alleged crime of rebellion and impeached by lawmakers. So, you know, Peru, it's, an, it's unfortunate. It's a beautiful country. I really love Peru. But they just really have significant issues with maintaining a leader for more than a couple years. I mean, Castillo has faced just a numerous amount of investigations on whether he benefited himself, his family, and his allies during his time. And remember, he stepped in as the interim president, I want to say about two years ago now. And again, like pretty much every other president in Peruvian history, at least of recent history, he's been a problem. So anyways, I also saw that Republicans are thinking about reconsidering their strategies after the midterms. Apparently the Herschel Walker thing really got them thinking. Uh, I'm glad eventually that's happening, even though you would think, (laughs) you'd think a lot of things. But anyways, (laughs) like I said, I wanted to do a special segment today on the Spanish Civil War, mainly on its early days from 1936 and 1937, 1938. 
And the reason I want to do it is because I've always been just someone who's been super fascinated with the Spanish Civil War. When I moved to Spain, I really started to understand the ramifications of it. I remember going to Valle de los Caídos, which is which is uh, Franco's grave. His body was recently removed from it because basically he used political prisoners and political enemies to build his grave. And it was pretty much like forced, you know, kind of gulag type labor to build it. And I went there and it was interesting to see that still a lot of people were there crying because they miss him. Other people are protesting it. This was, you know, uh, the fascist military strongman of Spain who, while Mussolini and Hitler died after World War II, Franco actually remained in power for another, like, what, 30 years, I want to, excuse me, I want to say, so it's a fascinating situation, and I've always thought that there's a lot of parallels between the failures of the West in helping Spain and what we've seen now with growing, like, Russian aggression, potentially aggression in Taiwan, and so I wanted to just give my thoughts on it and just some revelations from it and kind of what we can learn from complacency during crisis and when there's failures to reject authoritarianism around the world. And I've been reading one of the best books I've probably ever read in my life, and it's called Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. It's by Adam Hochschild. He also has written King Leopold's Ghosts, for example, which is a very dark but fascinating book about the Belgian-controlled Congo and all the atrocities that happened there. King Leopold pretty high up on the list of like worst figures in history. He, he's definitely in that list. But anyways, uh, this book, Spain in Our Hearts, is fascinating because it basically looks at how Spain's inequality and social divisions came to fruition in the Spanish Civil War that destroyed the country, divided families, divided people amongst one another, and was even kind of a testing ground for fascism itself. And the success of Hitler's technology and Mussolini's ideas in helping Franco take over Spain actually really kind of fueled fascism. And obviously we know that there was a world war that happened after that and the deaths of a lot of people. And a lot of people think that the Spanish Revolution could have happened, but it turned into more of a atrocious situation where the fascists won and kind of emboldened Europe. So... It's also a look at what happens when Western Western allies and people that support democracy ignore a flundering, struggling democracy and kind of turn a blind eye to fascists. And yeah, so some background though is Spain was one of the poorest countries in Europe at the time. I never really fathomed how <laughs> the feudal system of the past was actually still prevalent in Spain until the early to mid 20th century. Like... A lot of Europe kind of said goodbye to feudalism a long time earlier, but Spain was still kind of stuck in this very like feudalist landowner Pueblo vibe. And to put it into perspective, in the early 1900s, over a quarter of Spain was illiterate, which was the highest in Europe. This is the 1900s, right? And this is a country now that is seen very differently. So it's kind of fascinating when you think about that. And Later on, this is why simple propaganda was used by Franco's regime to kind of use pictures and just simple slogans to really appeal to the people because education was really not high. But anyways, you kind of had this society well that where there were wealthy landowners who were mainly Catholic, conservative, monarchists, owned most of the land, right? And you had people working off the land. 
The monarchists were usually religious clergy associated Catholics. And on the other hand, you just had this poor rural class who lived literally like this book by Hothschild, Hothschild just talks about it all the time. He just mentions how, you know, Orwell wrote about it, Hemingway discussed it, how these people just lived in mud huts practically, had no heat, running water, electricity, and they burned like collected twigs from the previous season for fuel. They lived in like constantly moist environments. And yeah, the, the quality of life was awful. And, you know, Hothschild just paints this picture of like, rich monarchists and landowners just living this high life, enjoying kind of this traditional Spanish society. And you have centuries of social tensions that are just slowly erupting. And this was kind of like the fuel that eventually started the Spanish Civil War. And on one side, there were the militaristic conservative Catholic elites who basically in 1931, you had the Spanish Republic make a new constitution, create a democratically elected system. And they basically almost forced, well, they eventually did force the king to leave. So the king was, the monarchy in general was exiled. A lot of military people like Franco himself were actually sent to outposts like Franco in the Canary Islands, which are off the coast of Africa. Like this new republic was really anti-Catholic influenced militaristic society. And so the problem was is that, is that the kind of elites of Spanish society and the wealthy Catholics of Spanish society at the time really felt that Spain's glory was in this imperial era, right? Like the days where they colonized the new world and had more gold than they could a- ever think of and where the sun never set in the Spanish empire. You know, they had territories from the Philippines to Peru and they needed force and order and wanted to bring this back. And this is where the military, the guys like Franco, a lot of the elites and the Catholics and the monarchy still felt. And that's why they were fine with kind of creating this feudalistic society that lasted way longer than it should have. And honestly, this ideology was kind of similar to Mussolini in Italy, who wanted to create a new Roman Empire. That's probably why Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, killed hundreds of thousands prior to World War II. But anyways, like I, I've painted that side. And again, I'm just doing this because I, I want to put a background into all this because I don't know, it's kind of fun to look at these dynamics. And anyways, on the other side, so you have this kind of reactionary, nationalist, militaristic right. And on the other side, you had this, this society that was angry at the status quo. And the main inspiration was an idea that's kind of unique to Spain, and it's libertarian anarchism. And of course, like those words are not unique to Spain, but this was this kind of unique movement that Othschild and uh, Orwell spoke a lot about was it was kind of this stateless capitalism also mixed with stateless anarchy. And it was really unique to Spain compared to anarchism in other places. This was also an alliance, though, as well with workers, labor movements, Democrats, left-wing revolutionaries, anarchists of different types. And eventually there were also Democrats on that side, but there were also people who didn't believe in a state. So you had these like conflicting groups. And as I've talked throughout this podcast, and it's probably why Franco ended up, in my opinion, taking Spain down the road and putting him into a fascist dictatorship, is it seemed like this new republic in Spain that formed in 31, even though it was a democracy... You had a lot of factions of the left and center that really didn't get along or agree. And so it probably, as time went on, made it easier for the far right and the fascists to take over. But you had, yes, this very unique 
clash between idealist anarchism and communism against kind of this traditionalist imperial fascism. And obviously over time, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, of course, we're going to support the nationalists, right? And the Soviet Union and Mexico were the main supporters of the left-leaning Republican government and the new Spanish government. And I will get into this in more detail in a bit, but there could have been other countries that helped the Spanish Republic, but of course, red scares and complacency didn't help. And it's interesting because early on, and this is kind of the main focus of Spain in our hearts, which is Hothschild's book I'm finishing up right now, is that there were so many revolutionaries and idealistic Marxists from around the world who just flowed to Spain, including people like Orwell and Hemingway, who were not like revolutionaries, but they were fascinated. And at a time, there was a lot of hope that this was going to be another French Revolution, because the early days of the military coup and the nationalist movement really led to people somewhat rejecting what was happening in the Soviet Union, but going, you know what, like, we need leftism, anarchism, and communism, and we need to stop the military coup led by Franco and other exiled nationalists from the Canary Islands. And I'm not going to focus on the coup itself, but it's actually just a side note fascinating how Franco wasn't even really supposed to be the leader of it. There was this guy, General Mola, who was another leader. And of course, like Franco's really good at getting Hitler to send new technology, new aircraft, and new weapons down to the Canaries. They also ally with a bunch of like Moorish and Moroccan prisoners. They get the Spanish Legion together. And next thing you know, they're getting Portugal on the left side of Spain, which is also a right-wing dictatorship. And before you know it, like half of Spain is just conquered. And Madrid <laughs> took a long time, but you hear people sitting in the top of the Telefonica Tower in Madrid just watching bombs exploding off, you know, into the distance. And you had people from all walks of life there. Like, you had Charles Darwin's son helping the cause. You had no names. There's even a guy from Reno, Nevada at UNR who was helping to fight against the fascist regime. But the whole thing just escalated so quickly. And, like, it's, it's just kind of wild, though, how evil and dark it got. Because there's one story, and let me pull it up here. I, I have it on my phone um, because I think it was kind of worth... Uh, worth mentioning in a very dark way, but basically there's this guy who's a press officer working for this fascist regime, and this is kind of in the early days when they're starting to retake Spain, and he says, you know what's wrong with Spain? Modern plumbing. Plumbing, sorry. In healthier times, I mean healthier times spiritually, plague and pestilence could be counted on to thin down the Spanish masses. Now with modern sewage disposal and the like, they multiply too fast. The masses are no better than animals, you understand, and you can't expect them not to be infected with the virus of Bolshevism. After all, rats and lice carry the plague. The Count, a cavalryman and an ardent polo player, claimed that when the coup began, he lined up the workers on his estate and shot half a dozen of them just to show it was his boss. Then at the same time as Franco's forces get closer to Madrid, other stories talk about how the Trotskyites were being purged from the Marxists inside the capital, you had people going, oh, are you, a, are you a nationalist reactionary? And even if they weren't, they were killed. So then you had both sides picking up the worst of others, turning families on each other. And before you know it, there's just a heightened sense of fear 
And then up in the north, in places like Barcelona, you have this kind of idealistic anarchism where people are going, oh, if you're part of the party, taxis are free, and we all they, they took over hotels. And so you had a lot of different factors in Spain all happening at the same time. And I do think, of course, as most of us know who know anything about what happened there, unfortunately, the idealism led to a lot of death and destruction. And I, I probably sound too light when I say that, but it was really bad. And I guess there was some sort of foreshadowing to it because as the fascists allied with Hitler in Germany and Mussolini from Italy, they talked about the Reconquista of Spain from the Canaries and from Morocco. And it was Franco and his men who started this with the, with the Spanish Legion and other like right-wing military groups. And the Reconquista was when the Christians took back the country from the infidels, or the Moors, the Muslims, at the time. And it was just foreshadowing, in a sense, of what this movement did. And, yeah, it was. it's sad to see what happened, but the, the atrocities on both sides were quite dark, but... I'm not. This is not meant to be a book review, but I just had to paint some of the general scope of what was happening at the time because I do truly believe, and many historians and scholars also do, that the Spanish Civil War was kind of a dress rehearsal for World War II, and it showed a failure of the Western democracies to stand up to Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini, and as these fascist or militaristic leaders tested new technologies and allegiances in Spain— the Western democracies just really turned a blind eye. And at one point in the book, Hostchild ponders what-if questions on the conflict. He asks, for example, here in quotes, what if the Western democracies had sold Republican Spain the arms it urgently tried to buy? Might these have been enough to defeat the aircraft, submarines, and troops dispatched by Hitler and Mussolini? And if so, would, would Hitler later have sent his troops into Austria, Czechoslovakia, and finally, some dozen other countries. Later, Hostchild even ponders if World War II would have unfolded in a more limited way if the world stood up to the aid that Germany and Italy were giving to Franco's reactionary movement. And these are, you know, fascinating questions because it seems like by the time we saw Hitler's advances into Poland and Czech, Czechoslovakia, there was an emboldened nature to it. And you have to think that all these tests of blitzkrieg attacks on places like Guernica and Mussolini's ability to then attack Ethiopia and then also help in Spain, you have to think that if the fascists weren't emboldened, would they have been able to eventually commit some of these just atrocities throughout World War II? And of course, we will never know. Of course, it could have happened. But I think if the West had have understood the threat... Things could have been different, and of course, history is twenty twenty. But if you just look at anything from like Homage to Catalonia, which is George Orwell's great book on this crisis where he went and served, or Hemingway's fictional account for whom the bell tolls, there's some really disturbing works on just how bad all of this was. And I think this war and its ramifications have been uh, fairly understudied. And this conflict, though, is so important. You know, I, I don't think I would have had such a fascination about it if I hadn't lived in Spain, because I think while I was there, you hear stories, and you talk to older people who, you know, Franco, older people who, are, who, were, who grew up when Franco was there, quite frankly, because remember, he lived much, much, much longer than the other fascists, and it's interesting to hear the stories about families who pointed fingers at one another, or whatnot, and... 
you also, if you read anything from The Economist or a lot of like foreign, foreign press organizations, they're still digging up mass graves in Valencia, which is where the Spanish government moved after Franco and his forces were close to Madrid, for example. And before, obviously, Franco eventually took over. And I also don't think everyone realizes that the Basque town of Guernica, which inspired Picasso's painting, which is historic and in Madrid, Guernica was a test bombing by Hitler to see how his new air force would go down in basically blitzkrieging a city. And uh, I, I remember I went to the museum in Guernica and you learn about this stuff. And you have to think it was insane, first off, that Franco was willing to let Hitler test these bombs on his own people. But then you go, oh, they were Basques. They were in the north and they didn't support his regime. And that was how brutal it became. And, you know, history is 2020. Hindsight is 2020. But when you look back at all of this, this all happened at a time where there were warning signals out there. And, you know, anyways, I think you guys are probably wondering why I'm bringing this up. And first up, I think it's a lesson. But I also think it's interesting because we are seeing rising authoritarianism right now. And I think Madeleine Albright said it best when she said every age has its own fascism. Because I do hear people that I even respect a lot say you can't compare what's happening now to what's happening in the 30s. And you're right. But every age has some form of fascism because fascism is a, a mutating, ever-changing, flexible ideology that doesn't always have anything set in stone other than tradition, strength, and external force. And that also involves creating corporate ties with a lot of the elite financial class. And it also means basically an adherence to, to the rule of law to an extent that there's no opposition to it. And so that can change, that can really change over time. And I think we're seeing something similar now. And I think as we've seen like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think there are warning signs to that. And as we might see changing views on how much support we should give to Ukraine going forward, I think it's important to think about what happens when you don't support a democracy that is in the threat of authoritarianism. Also Taiwan right now. There's just questions out there about what 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 would happen if 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 a country like Ukraine all of a sudden did not get arms and I remember the book Fascism, A Warning by Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton's Secretary of State. She talked about Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia, but Spain in Our Hearts actually, I think, talks about it even more, but she was the one who first brought it to light for me. And even before the Nazis and Italians propped up nationalist Spain, Ethiopia was kind of a storm before the pre-storm before the real storm, as I, as I like to call it. And Basically, Mussolini wanted to colonize the east of Africa because there really hadn't, that was the last like untouched, like the Ethiopian area was kind of the last untouched part of Africa, and he wanted to return glory to Rome. Remember, he kind of wanted, like Spain, to bring back their imperial days. And Mussolini was definitely like, he wanted to be a Caesar, for sure. And this led to a brutal campaign that killed over half a million Ethiopians, and was somewhat of a warning of fascism's brutality to come. I, I remember Hostchild in the book talks about how troops on both sides of this quick invasion, which obviously the Italians were very good at winning, um, they basically say that Mussolini didn't seem to care if he took Italy with or without the people there. And what I mean there is they killed a shit ton of people. And after the invasion of Ethiopia, or I, I would say just the slaughter in Ethiopia, 
the emperor of Ethiopia warned that Europe would be next. And the world just basically shrugged it off. And at the League of Nations, he warned that it was Ethiopia today and the world and Europe next. And unfortunately, that seemed to be the case because then came the military coup that occurred in Spain after the Republic, you know, exiled the monarchy, cut down the military, pissed off generals. Maybe that's a lesson. We're not going to get into that today. But that happened in Spain after the country was trying to make up for centuries of being an unequal and broken state. But the government was not as effective as it should have been, and there were networks of monarchists and right-wingers who quietly supported these movements. And I feel like right now we're seeing some of these warning signs again, and we see them, and we've seen them for decades. For example, you know, when you think about, like, what happened in Ethiopia and then the eventual Spanish Civil War leading into then World War II, we, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not saying we're going into a world war, but... We should have known that, for example, Assad's massacres and the civil war in Syria would lead to a complete displacement of millions and a humanitarian crisis. We should also have known that when Russia joined Assad and started bombing the shit out of places like Aleppo, that it was going to be a problem back home. And when Obama drew a red line and then wouldn't cross it, it was problematic. And that, I think, emboldened Russia in a lot of ways because we did nothing in Syria other than basically send some sort of quasi-aid us in Turkey, you know, had misaligned but aligned goals. You saw the rise of the Azab- or sorry, the, the Wagner group in, in Syria, and y- you saw like a, a Western alliance that really wasn't able to stand up to what Assad and Putin were doing, and that emboldens sociopaths. And one could even look back earlier to what happened in Georgia when the Russian forces practically leveled, excuse me, leveled cities. And... If we have paid attention to what the Russian regime or the Assad government or what China has did to Hong Kong, for example, and wants to do to Taiwan, then we should not be surprised that there are autocrats out there testing what they can do. And I think it's a warning sign of now what we're seeing Putin doing in Ukraine and what his end goals are, because you don't just start a big conflict, you kind of keep dipping into the water to see how deep you can get before you freeze. And much like what happened in Spain and then World War II, Putin kept getting away with, I mean, not Putin, geez, little slip right there. Um, Hitler got kept getting away with things. And Ukraine is a flawed democracy by almost every measure. And that doesn't mean there shouldn't be support for it. And this does actually sound like Spain prior to the Civil War. Now, I should note that, again, I'm not drawing perfect parallels here. I'm one of the people who says history doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think there are interesting parallels, at least. And anyway, Spain was a young and flawed republic, right? I talked about how in 31, I believe it was, that was when the government finally had a democratically elected government and a new constitution, And that was pretty big at the time. And I don't think there was enough recognition by countries like the United States, England, France, how big of a deal this was. Because at the time, countries like Portugal, Poland, Greece, Lithuania, Romania, Hungary, all had far-right regimes. And Spain was next to many of them. And they all also were very anti-Semitic and talked about cleansings in different forms. And a lot of the world was cheering on Spain until Spain needed help, of course. And, however, while the U.S. and our allies 
have been helping Ukraine. It seems like most of the world in this scenario was not willing to help the Spanish Republic fight off the growing fascists. For example, and this is uh, always one that, don't you remember I talked about how fascism is strengthened by a corporate connection with the government? In this case, the British companies that mined Spain's copper and sulfur had tangled up with the nationalists. And the British, of course, had sympathies for Nazi Germany and had their own issues with trying to manage that. So they mainly stayed out of sending any aid to Spain. And there's even reports that like in Gibraltar, which is which was part of, part of the UK and still is part of the UK, there were, there were dialogues and telegrams being shared between Franco's forces and the British government. And that, that shouldn't surprise anyone because of financial interests. And Hochschild also notes that Hitler and other fascists also had sympathizers in North America. For example, the Canadian Prime Minister... W.L. Mackenzie King had visited Berlin, and he said here in quotes that Hitler would someday rank with Joan of Arc among the deliverers of his people. <laughs> that aged really well, didn't it? And also there were millions of Americans listening to this guy that was known as the radio priest who was this anti-Catholic, anti-Semite who just rallied up kind of that Protestant base. And also there was fervor in the German-American Bund, who had rallies, had summer camps, intimidated immigrants, and had basically thousands join their group. Sorry, tens of thousands join their group. And I think I saw in Atlanta there was even like 20,000 marching against like immigrants. Um, and of course, I'm sure people are aware of like the Lindberghs, who was a very famous military pilot in the U.S., who was like a close isolationist, who was really close with the Nazi regime as well. Like, there was a lot of um, complacency and even, like, silent support. And even France, which, by the way, had a leftist government and also had borders with fascist Germany and was close with Italy, did not want Spain to turn into that as well. But many of French generals quietly supported Franco. And like most of Europe, France also had a strong right-wing minority that supported Hitler either quietly or loudly. And as we know, there was a time where the Nazis even controlled France down the road. And so I think you had a mix of like the Red Scare dynamics happening because a lot of these Western countries were democracies, but also didn't like the idea of Marxism. And of course, it didn't help when the Soviet Union was the first big major power, major military power to send arms to Spain right around that time as well. Unfortunately, FDR president of the United States, actually put out an arms embargo on selling weapons to Spain. And side note, this was one of his greatest regrets, apparently, later in life, according to reports. But I do think that Stalin supporting the Spanish government really didn't help because the idea that Marxists were fighting for the Spanish Republic really hurt the cause and fueled Red Scare fears around the world, which I think is kind of relevant today when you think about the growing fear of communism in the United States when there's really not that issue. And, I mean, side note, I should also note that uh, George Orwell was in a military brigade, I think, in Catalonia. So that's like Barcelona area. So, um, And they only had like a few guns because the Soviets actually, they were arming Spain, but most of the guns they had were from like the 1860s, so even prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. And so they were using like really old, really old, just horribly made rifles. 
And because there was no single rifle that was being used, it was hard to train these guys because a lot of the people fighting for the Spanish Republic were not military trained. Instead, they were idealistic communists who were either unionists or journalists, and they'd never really fought before. And Orwell always talks about how a guy next to him was given a gun who had never fought before, and he never actually was given the gun, and he actually had the experience, but they didn't arm him because he was actually um, a, a royal police officer in Burma. I believe it was either Burma or India. And he just, Orwell really well writes about the failures to actually arm them and the unification of training, while as the Germans and the Italians were really heavily helping Franco's forces. And again, going back, like, I think, I think the, the issue though, was that you have Soviets arming them, poorly arming them, and a lot of the West is going, we don't want to really be helping like a communist threat. And while there were communists and Marxists and anarchists, Hothschild also does make it clear in Spain in our hearts that there was kind of a necessary alliance, albeit unstable alliance, basically between the Marxists, the anarchists, the libertarians, the centrists, the Democrats, basically anyone that opposed fascism and military dictatorships. So it wasn't like this was actually this red communist army um, that that probably like the, the right-leaners in a lot of these Western countries thought. But the message did not seem to stick because Franco was quite good at the propaganda inside and outside of Spain, and there were obviously allies in these countries. And a lot of the West did not believe that the fat fascists were bad for business, and they believed the Marxists were. I think that's like the bottom line of it. And I think this is something that kind of still rings true to this day, definitely in a different light. I think it seems like the fears of Marxism and leftism, even if they are not non-existent, can really taint the minds of the weak or the complacent or the uninformed. And I think the fact that leftist France could not even help Spain at the beginning is somewhat telling of what partisanship can do and fear of the other. And I think today about how many on the you know far right in the United States have defended Putin or downplayed what's happening in Ukraine or boosted his like strong masculine ideologies. And I worry if these groups could get more power, they could also be the complacent ones who are not for rejecting authoritarianism. And it's kind of this age-old threat of, do you want an open society where people feel like they have a voice or do you want some strong adherence to tradition that does require evil force. And, you know, some of these Spanish legions, and I'm going off a little bit here, but some of these Spanish legions were very strangely disciplined, where if they didn't think you were strong enough or masculine enough, you could actually kill anyone in the organization without any questions being asked. That was in Hot Child's book, which was interesting. And it just shows this true adherence to violence, which we saw Franco's regime carry out for decades after all this happened. And I think the question that just burns into people's heads is like, what would have happened if you sent aid? And of course, you know, I think you guys understand that I'm trying to relate this back to Ukraine a little bit. And I guess I read a quote today about how free societies are slower to get involved in international conflicts than others because they have to make the case to their domestic base first. Like, they can't just decide to go to war. They have to make the case for the people that vote for them. But the same person who had that quote also said that once they do get involved in international conflicts, they're usually more committed and provide better help. And, you know, that is probably the silver lining of this, if if you want to call it that. 
is that we failed to help Spain. Spain fell into a fascist, militaristic society, and Hitler and Mussolini were emboldened. And obviously, everyone knows what happened next. I just think it is interesting that once the free societies like the United States did get involved in World War II, they were very committed and instrumental. And I think, I think it's true what that quote was, is that once these democratic societies get involved, they provide better help. Because I think the case has been proven after we've learned from the post-World War II NATO world. And I think, I think most Americans and other citizens and democracies do understand that protecting them is important. But I, I always hear these arguments from some people that maybe try to like downplay what's happening in Ukraine or at least say like there's good guys on both sides or bad guys on both sides. Is They always say, well, Ukraine's a corrupt democracy. It's a failing democracy. Like It's kind of a weak state. Like Why are we propping it up? It's because usually if you're invading a country and you want to make a point, you're going to find whatever point you want, but it's not just about one thing. And I, I think Hitler, I mean, God, I, I'm having these slips. I think Putin doesn't just care about Ukraine. I think it's something bigger and something more nefarious. And so Ukraine wants to be part of the democratic world, much like Republic Spain in 1931 before the Civil War did. And there's flaws there. Spain and Ukraine somewhat have similar flaws, albeit different from different eras. But you need, like the world needs to understand that you can't just bend the knee. And as history moves and times change, people forget things easily and they come complacent again. And that's where things can unfold quite quickly. So, you know, I I do encourage people to read this book, Spain in Our Hearts, because it just highlights the early hopes. But I just want to end on a very (laughs) dark note, is towards, towards the middle of the Spanish Civil War before Franco, Franco's government obviously was victorious, or Franco's movement was victorious. There's a story in Co- near Cobadonga, which is in uh, Asturias, in the northern parts, where actually the Reconquista started. And it's a pretty rural mountain area on kind of the northwest coast, or northwest region of Spain, more or less. And I guess all these leftists went and <laughs> murdered this rich landowning guy's bulls, and he used them for bullfights. And once Franco's forces got into the area and the guy came back, into power, they started hunting down the people that killed his bulls. And apparently one of the guy's nephews was, was at least charged with doing it. And the guy was begging to his uncle and he said, come on, I'm your nephew. You wouldn't kill me for this. And, and he looked at his nephew and said, I know no one. And I think that was like kind of the ringing call of the Spanish civil war is family members and friends all of a sudden overnight kind of shut down on one another and it became about your idea of what the state was supposed to be. And I just think that we don't want a society like that. And so it's important to prop up the guys that at least believe in fairness and freedom. Again, like I am not a communist or by any means, and I'm not a Marxist. But I think that these unstable coalitions at least understood that you didn't want this elitist, militaristic society that wanted to bring back the past and subjugate minorities for it. So I think we have to remember that as the world gets confusing with the Uyghurs, with the Taiwan situation, 
with what's happening in the Middle East, with what Turkey and other countries as well, Iran, are doing to the Kurds. I think that's another important one to talk about. And of course, what Putin is doing in Ukraine. So on that lovely note, I want to thank you for listening on this Thursday. I'll be back tomorrow. Um, sorry, I didn't do a lot of current events, but there's just so many random things happening that aren't like crazily important. There's just so much noise right now. I wanted to switch it up. So anyways, sorry, it went a little bit long. Sorry for my ranting here. But uh, anyways, have a great rest of your day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else there is. Ciao.